G'day everybody, my name is Glenn Hill. And I'm Jacob Meyer. Welcome to another episode of the Technical Tennis Podcast, and today we're going to talk about Return of Surf. Yay. Yeah, so we've, <laughs> we've kind of been working our way through a lot of different aspects of preparing to play competitive tennis matches, and we've even talked some about some of the strategy and mentality side of competing during a match we've talked a little bit about serving strategy but we haven't really talked at all yet about return of surf and you know when we think about how we spend our time at a practice court i know that we have mentioned this in a previous episode for those of you who didn't catch that but we have addressed the fact that given the 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 fact that every single point that you play in a match is going to start on your end with either a serve or a return of serve that should be where you are spending a huge amount of your time that you spend on the court practicing. That you should be investing a lot of your practice time in practicing the return of serve. Yes, I mean, the return of serve is going to be, depending on who you are, either the return or the serve itself are going to account for the single most, the single highest sort of ratio of points in a match, that, in a match that's going to be determined by one shot. That was a terrible way to say that, but... Yeah, maybe we, maybe we could try and tackle that again. You wanna you wanna have another shot at that? <laughs> I don't do have it. a better way to say it. <laughs> I think maybe we could say it like this: that depending on your style of play or what your strengths are, the return either the return or the return of serve is going to be the single biggest point of differentiation between who wins and loses the match for you. Would that be a a way you might think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's pretty good. At least. You know, I'm just trying to get to the this this very personal fact for me, right? When I was in my first five years of playing tennis, like we were practicing all the shots, or I thought I was practicing all the shots. And then sometime after playing tennis for five years and starting to play tournaments and whatnot, I looked back and realized I've never practiced how to return serve. You know, my coaches just kind of said, well, you just return kind of like that. You stand back there and you hit it back and then you go play. And it, right. was the wor- it was the worst part of my game by far. And like that single shot cost me 20% of all the points played in a match routinely. Sure. Sure. So, I mean, that's, it makes a huge difference. So it's, it's interesting when I think back to my own tennis journey and growing up and the top pros that were coming to preeminence in the game at that time. And Agassi stood apart because he was this first guy that I can really remember that focused on return of serve and built his game in a sense around return of, and he was known for his return of serve and his aggressiveness on the return of serve. Um, and I mean, I think there are some people that still would consider him the greatest returner in the history of the sport. I'm not sure that I would agree with that anymore, but certainly at the time, he was the only guy that I can remember that was distinctive and known for his return of serve. And well, I think that shows... I was just going to say, to me, that shows how much the focus has shifted in the years since because I didn't practice return to serve when I was young uh, so much. It wasn't really something that coaches really focused on that much. Yeah, it's good to hear that because sometimes I just thought like that I got the short end of the stick there. Um, but the, the thing that really stands out to me about Andre is that he seemed to be one of those characters in history that marks a a significant change like a generational shift or um an evolution in the game so i think before andre we sort of thought like yeah you know maybe you can attack the second serve um maybe you run around it you hit a forehand or, or or something like that but there wasn't anyone that stood out match in and match out where you were afraid to hit second serves to the guy because he was going to try and hurt you off of both sides. Yes. And, you know, now <laughs> there's a lot of guys in the game like that. And all of them trace their lineage in terms of developing that idea back to Andre Agassi. Sure. I mean, he, was, he was the guy at the forefront of the game who did it the most. And did it, ironically, I don't think he built his game around it as much as some other guys did, but he was the guy who was playing on the final weekend in slams routinely for 10, 15 years, 
and was out there on TV all the time. So he's the guy I think that we see and that we associate with that. Sure. I mean, certainly he was the first guy that I, I that I know of to become famous for his return of surf. Yes. And, and to become exactly. known for it. And so I think that fact brings us to a great starting point on how to frame this whole discussion, which is more of a strategy one because we've talked before in some of the recent podcasts about the serve and the first shot after the serve, the plus one, and how you should think about those things and your second serve uh, in order to play the type of tennis that you want to be playing. And we've talked about that too, your identity as a tennis player. And your return of serve is another piece of this puzzle that fits into how do you want to be playing points? What style of player are you? Because if your return of serve and the style of your return of serve doesn't match up with that, then that that can cause a kind of a dissonance in your playing style where you're going to end up leaving points on the table. Yeah, and beyond that, I think even if the return of serve doesn't match up appropriately with the rest of your game, that dissonance itself, the, the incoherence there can cause psychological problems and make it difficult for you to perform at your best in other aspects of your game. Sure. So there was, when I think back to my own tennis journey again, I was a, a very, very aggressive-minded junior, like hyper-aggressive, right? Mm-hmm. The idea of making seven balls never, ever entered my mind. <laughs> it was absolutely trying to win the point as fast as you can. And so as, say, a 14-, 15-year-old who had never been taught returning as something distinct on its own, as a distinct skill, you can guess exactly how I tried to return. I would aggress, guess probably very aggressively. Yeah, and that was it. And and there was nothing else. It was like, I'm trying to do the same thing on the return that I'm trying to do everywhere else. When you mm-hmm. look back on that, and I use myself because I was, a, I think, sort of a, a characterization of it, right? Like it was very one-sided. When you look back on that, at least I think you can see, okay, well, in one sense, that's good that he's trying to do the same thing for the whole day. You know, he's right. not trying to be three different kinds of players. Sure. Um, there's a downside to that, obviously. <laughs> well, the, da- the downside is if you don't have the skill to, to <laughs> execute. Which it I sounds... did not have the skill to execute what I was trying to do. Right. And that, that could be a problem. So let's kind of take a second and talk about these these different philosophies and, and strategically how they were pieced together. Because, you know, if we look at some of the great returners uh, that stand out over the course of the last 20, 30 years, I mean, Andre Agassi would be an example of a very aggressive returner, somebody who st- stepped up, took the ball early on both first and second serves, really attacked the server with his returner serve. And we could contrast that with, to me, somebody who's at the opposite end of the spectrum, which would be Rafael Nadal, who wants to stand sometimes 15, 20 feet behind the baseline and hit a high, heavy, loopy, very, well, for him, a very safe return because he wants to start the point in a very neutral fashion, whereas Andre wanted to start the point in control. Um, so these would, these would represent maybe two extremes of somebody who, who's focused on re- making every return versus somebody who's focused on hurting you with every return that they make. Uh, Andre is pretty clear-cut, right? Like he's one-dimensional in a good way. He was trying to hurt you all the time with every return, and that's just the way it was. I think he had um, c- conviction. Maybe it would be a yeah. good way to describe that. Like th- this is why it was he was in one-dimensional in a good way because there was there was a pure sense of purpose and a conviction to the the, the mentality and the philosophy there. He, he wasn't Absolutely. a guy who wasn't like, oh God, this doesn't work for two shots. Let me change my mind. Right. He was he was absolutely determined to find a way to do the thing that he thought was the best thing to do. And, I mean, come on, he was an extremely successful returner. There's a reason that we talk about him with such honor the way that we do. I mean, he was very, very good at it. I think that some of the guys now that we view as being the top returners of the game, whether it's Rafa or whether it's Novak or whether it's Roger, I'm not saying that they don't have conviction. I... I am going to say, though, that they are less one-dimensional. Yes. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but that's probably another evolution in the game, right? Like, Andre has talked about Roger in terms of, hey, this guy's doing things that I just didn't even think to do. Like, I, I can't do them. I never tried to do them. I don't know if I even could do them if I had tried. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Roger has showed that most people cannot do them even when they do dry. But, you know, it's, it's hard to contrast that because, you know, Ra- Rafa, and you've worked some on this, you know, will change things about how he returns based on different surfaces, based on different circumstances, based on even who he's playing and stuff. And so it's hard to, to pigeonhole him the same way that we can with Andre. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me like for most of us, when we're not top 100 ATP or WTA players, we're probably going to be more on the Andre Agassi side of things in the sense that we probably need to be more one-dimensional because we probably don't have a world-class forehand and a world-class backhand and world-class movement and world-class reflexes and all of those things. Am I making sense here? Yeah, or no, I, I, just... I think that makes sense. I mean, ironically, I think that in, in many ways, Ruff uh, has become more one-dimensional in his return of serve as his career has progressed because now we've seen him retreat back really far behind the baseline on both first and second serve deliveries. Uh, and yeah. he hits a very similar kind of ball very consistently. I think as as he has come to get even a, a greater understanding of his own game and his own strategy, his own tactics, I think he's slowly molded his return of serve more and more and figured out that, you know, if he just stands back there and just makes every return high and heavy, then he starts a lot of points neutral and then he's going to win an extra 2 or 3% points per match doing that. And so in a, in, a, in a funny way, I think he's become more one-dimensional. But I think you're absolutely right in that that's – and that's the right play for Rafa. And I think it's the right play for most people. I mean, it, in a sense, like it's, it's funny because I think that Federer and Rafa have very similar mentalities in their return to serve in that they both place a premium on making a lot of returns because they both believe – I think have always believed that if they get themselves in a rally, they'll find a way to win the point. Yeah, which is also which is also true for them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because... but whereas Fed would do it by standing higher up in the court and chipping a lot of slice backhands and kind of playing a flatter forehand, he was looking to start the point in a way where like, I'm going to take some time away from you, but I'm still going to make a lot of returns and we're going to start playing this rally where I'm on the baseline. And Rafa says, well, I'm going to make a ton of returns, but it's going to be in a higher heavy ball and I'm happy to stand 10 feet back and you're going to have to stand 10 feet back. And we're going to play on these terms. But they both have a same kind of make a lot of returns philosophy. Whereas I think, you know, if you look at Novak, he's, he's more aggressive. But I, yeah, that, that purity of purpose, that understanding, having a good enough understanding of your own game to build a coherent return philosophy that you commit to is critical. And so, you know, when we talk about how do we implement this from a tactical standpoint, which I think would be our next level. If you understand what your strategy is, maybe my strategy is going to be to make a lot of balls. Well, then it becomes, well, how do I do that? Do I do it rougher style where I stand back and I loop it high and heavy? Do I do it more Fed style with more chipping? Even though, I mean, Fed will hit over a lot more returns these days. I mean, significantly more than he used to. Or you might think of like Patrick Rafter in, in the day. You know, he's, he's hitting a lot of slice returns. Um, that would be two examples of wanting to make a lot of returns. If we looked at examples of how to hurt your opponent off the return, you've got somebody like Andre Agassi or Novak Djokovic who's going to try and really drive that return and attack you with it. But another way of attacking the returner or the server with the return would be chipping and charging, playing like a slice return and coming in behind it and forcing them to make a pass right away. So there's different tactics within the strategy of how you want to think about returning. So this brings up a really good uh, kind of a side topic for me because there's a few different elements obviously here and they all integrate together and they all connect, right? So you, we can separate them into categories to some degree, but we can't completely separate them. Mm-hmm. So we talk about Rafter and we talk about, you know, this guy would chip and charge off the second serve return a ton. A ton. Like if you put a slow second serve, he's he's coming in. Yeah, he's in the net. Right. Absolutely. And you know, I've talked I've talked to Pat Sum. He's an interesting guy. Um, you've talked to Pat Sum as well. But I wonder, like, I haven't talked to him enough to know what's in his head back in back in the day when he was competing. Like when he's in the finals of the US Open, I wonder what his mentality was when he's chipping and charging off a second serve return. Like, I can't tell if that was 
a, if that was more a priority of, well, I know if I chip and charge, I'm going to make this ball and I'm going to make him play. I don't know if he was thinking more like that or if he was thinking more like an Andre where he's like, I know if I chip and charge, I'm going to get a volley and I'm probably going to win the point. You know, well, he's definitely compete with me. I mean, I, I can I can speak to that some. I'm pretty sure he's playing on his own terms. I mean, if you're Patrick Rafter, you want to be at the net hitting a volley, and every ground stroke that you hit is in in, in a lot of ways lowering your chances of winning the point. And so for him, the priority <laughs> is playing is the priority is playing on his terms. And and for yeah. him, if you hit a second serve, he's going to chip that and come in because he can, and he's going to get in there and make you hit the pass, and hopefully he's going to get his volley. And, and he's going to hurt you that way. But there's there's a sense in which Rafter's overall philosophy, his overall strategy was a very aggressive one. It was centered around getting to the net and playing volleys and forcing play. And the return of serve fit into that in, in, a, in a cohesive way. And so it's a, it's a weird sense in, in that in some ways you might think of it as being almost a little bit like, oh, I'm going to make a ton of returns. But I think the, the, the drive was more, I'm going to make you hit a lot of passing shots. I'm going to make you beat me when I'm at the net, which is where I'm at my best. Um, yeah, it's so just, there's it's, a way that it will can dovetail. Right. And, and that dovetail is really interesting to me. Like that the same issue makes me think of Yannick Noah back in the day when mm-hmm. Matt Svelander said, you know, Yannick showed us that you don't have to hit good shots to win a slam, <laughs> which is like a really kind of double-sided compliment, right? Well, I don't like, think there's any. I don't think there's anything double-sided about that. That's a backhanded in, uh, compliment, if ever I've heard well, one. Well, it is backhanded because, of course, he was much better from the ground than Yannick. But I think at the same time, he also felt like, I mean, look, like don't take away from what this guy did. Like he went out there on slow red clay in Paris and beat all of us. And, and he did it where, like, if, if he was going to hit, you know, 10 forehands back and forth with me or 10 backhands back and forth with me, I know I'm going to beat him all the time. And so right. instead, like, he's using these slow shots, these short shots, these lobs, like, all these things that I think of as not being good shots and using them to win. And so there's, I think, an, a, a genuine respect there, almost a mystery. Like, how could you do that, right? I mean... I think in in someone, if you're a competitor like Mots, you you must be thinking to yourself, man, like if I could do that, I would be twice as good as this guy because I do everything else better than him, mm-hmm. right? But the point being, you know, you look at what Yannick was doing, you look at what Rafter's doing, he's hitting a slice backhand. He's not hitting a slice backhand 88 miles an hour. Right, no. You know, that, that, that slice backhand is the slowest ground stroke in that match, period. Like, on a consistent basis. I mean, it's the slowest shot that's going to be out there. But he's using it in an aggressive way, right? So he's positioning, he's getting to the net, you know, he's moving explosively in these things. And so it's it's just, it's a fascinating sort of contrast in, okay, well, what really is the strategy? Because I think Rafter knows if he backs up and tries to return like Rafa, like, I'm going to back up, I'm going to give myself more time, and, and I'm going to rip my ground strokes. Well, he would have made a lot more errors. It would not have played into his game, and he wouldn't have been playing on his terms, like you said. So mm-hmm. it's nice that for Rafter, he found a way, you know, and this is probably why the guy got to number one in the world and won multiple slams, but he found a way to dovetail his strengths away from his weaknesses and put things together so that he could have a coherent approach to the game where he was able to both be consistent and aggressively influence the position of the match to put himself in some sort of position of advantage. Yeah, well, and again, though, I just want to stress, I don't think that the focus for him was on consistency. I think the focus for him was on getting to the net, was on not playing baseline to baseline points with opponents if he didn't have to. Um, You know, I mean, I certainly saw him miss returns because he was trying to be aggressive. I think there was a, a way, too, in which a lot of times that slice back end, he was really pressing with it. Because um, if you watch some of his matches with Andre at Wimbledon, for example, when they played a couple times in the semis there, I mean, Rafter would play a lot of baseline to baseline slice backhands that were high and floaty, but bouncing four inches inside the baseline over and over again. Right. And, and whereas his chip returns tended to be, you know, a little harder, lower, flatter, um, skidding more. 
because uh, you know in that situation he's really trying to limit your ability to attack him while he closes but uh yeah so I, I you know there's when we look at the strategy side of things i mean there's different ways that we can implement different philosophies that that it depends on how your game goes uh, so if we shift from there to a, a more of a mechanical side of things and we think about what does the return of serve look like because i think unless you're playing nick Kyrgios, who's occasionally bombing 135 mile an hour second serves, for the most part, there tends to be about a 20 to 30 mile an hour pace difference between most male professional players, first serve and second serve. Uh, I'm not sure off the top of my head what the, the spread on the, the women's side is, but I want to say it's it's probably somewhat similar, you know, 15 to, to 25 miles an hour. Uh, I think it's a little bigger. That would be surprising to me. But uh, either way, I mean, we're still talking about it. There's there's a large gap usually between the pace in the first and the pace in the second. And that necessitates changes in the way we go about hitting that return. I mean, if somebody's going to hit 125 mile an hour serve at me, I'm going to return that mechanically in a very different way than I will if somebody's going to hit a 95 mile an hour kicker. And so maybe we could talk a little bit about the difference in swing length uh, that goes along with this. Well... To start that, what I would ask you is, how do you think about, like, let's say someone comes to you and they say, like, okay, Glenn, help me out. Um, I need to improve my return. And mm-hmm. the first thing that I want to address is, you know, what what should my swing kind of look like? Like, what kind of swing, swing should I even be putting on the ball? How do you start that conversation with someone? Well, I start the conversation coming back to the idea of strategy is what you know what sort of game are you trying to play out there and how do you think your return of serve fits into that picture uh past that i mean i'm going to look at the way somebody actually returns i'm going to hit some serves at them and, and and have a look at that and and see how it goes what i find is that most people tend to swing too much on the first they take too big of a swing on the first serve and often enough not big enough on the second um depending a little bit on on how they go about you know the the tactical side of things uh you know in terms of how high up on the court they're returning that kind of thing but most people i think tend to have a very similar approach on their first and second serve and they're not really making a whole lot of adjustments between the two and and so you know when we look at a first serve i mean the first serve that ball's got a lot more energy and momentum into it it's traveling faster um and so when we think about as the returner what that looks like i've got less time before I have to hit the ball, so I've got less time to react, less time to do the physical actions of my stroke of the return of serve. But then mm-hmm. I also have to put less energy into the ball to get it to go somewhere and do something. And and so in that case, I'm gonna you know most of the time focus with people on shortening up the backswing significantly, like shrinking the swing down, cutting cutting out any unnecessary movement, just focusing on getting a good better strings behind the ball and then through the ball. In, in as clean and compact a motion as, as we can. And that's for a first serve. That's for a first serve return, absolutely. Because right. that's the one I think people tend to just, oh, I'm just going to hit a normal grand stroke. And then they're late all the time. And and so, you know, when I'm playing, if I see somebody who's trying to take a full cut at a first serve, especially when it's off their strength, like that's, that's, the, that's the side I'm going to attack. That's the side I'm going to go after from early in the match. Because, mm-hmm. you know, if I see somebody trying to do that, I'm thinking, well, there's a weakness. There's something I can I can really take advantage of. Um, maybe you could start talking a little bit about where you begin when you start working with somebody. I mean, do you have a, a specific technique that you teach people to return with, or is it more just you you want to change the way they think about things? I think the first thing that I do is try and adjust the way that they think about things. Mm-hmm. Most of my time these days is spent working on returns with pro players and then just talking with lower level players. Um, Where we start very specifically is we take them out onto the court and I literally roll in a kicker to the middle of the box to them. Um, Like, I mean, I just kind of put it in slow and see, okay, how do they return that? And Mm -hmm. What we want to get to is if I put in a slow kicker that doesn't have a lot of movement, that doesn't have great anything, that doesn't do anything to hurt them, then they should be treating that ball like a regular ground stroke. Okay. And 
that's where we start. So we're talking like a full swing, like attacking, going after him. Yeah, I mean, you have to keep in mind that, you know, they're two-word players. Like, if you put in a, a, a not-fast ball that doesn't do much, that's in the middle of the court, then they're going to hurt you on it. Like, <laughs> some guys are hitting winners. Some guys are just pounding the ball huge. Some guys are, you know, hitting an angle and coming into the net. They have different ways to do it, but they have their form of attacking, and they're able to play on their own terms. So yeah. how does that contrast then... If so, you're starting with this slow kicker, and you're just making sure that somebody's really taking a full swing at that. Let's move that to, let's say, a pretty like medium-paced first serve. Like, how does that change in your mind? Well, the way that we try and get them to think about it is, we we create like a baseline for let's find the place where. Let's, let's find the amount of time or the speed at which a ball makes you feel like you're rushed and you're not able to do your normal thing anymore, mm-hmm. right? So like, let's say if I hit a, a 65 mile an hour serve easy in there, then they're just killing this ball, it's fine. 70 miles an hour, okay, they can do that quickly. 75, they can still do it. 80, they can still do it, but they're starting to feel pressure. Maybe at 85 miles an hour, now they, they start to do something different and they can't assert themselves anymore. We try and find where that point is and we we make that point explicit and say, look, like this is kind of uh, an imaginary line for you. When somebody hits it this fast, it starts to make you feel like you have trouble. And so what we're going to do is work on your game in a way so that we move that imaginary line up and up and up and up. Mm-hmm. So after a while, instead of 85 miles an hour, hopefully it's 100 and 110 and 120, you know, et cetera. Right. Okay. Um, so w- we focus more on reacting quickly, on changing our positioning, and on using different tactics to be able to do the things that we're already good at. Um, and building from the bottom up instead of jumping to say like a medium, a medium pace for sure. Right. But that's, that's not going to happen overnight. I mean, you're not going to take somebody and to where they're taking like full backswing, normal ground stroke cuts at a 130 mile an hour first serve. So when somebody's hitting 130 mile an hour first serve, how do you encourage players to think about returning that? Yeah, so the truth is this goes way, way, way back, I think, to like our first 10 podcasts. And mm-hmm. the the strategy that I use is we put them out there to return some of them, and we basically just take notes on it. And I ask them to try different things. So try to take a, small, a shorter swing, try and chip it, try and block it, try just to hit it flat, try to take kind of a regular swing just to see what that looks like. Um, and we just take some repetitions doing that. And then literally I, I look at it and figure out what are they able to do most effectively right now. Mm-hmm. Right. And and we take that thing and say, okay, this is what you're most effective at when like a big serve comes your way. So let's make sure that you're prepared to do the thing you're most effective at when a big serve comes your way. Right. And be committed to doing that. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. having having that clarity of, of purpose, I mean, one of the things that I've always tried to encourage people to do is understand in, in, in different situations on the court what your best option is. And it's going to be different from one player to the next. So if you get that short forehand, I know some people who win far more points who when they're, they're chipping, like hitting a slice forehand from short in the court than if they try and drive over it just because of the way they hit their technique. And these are like strong club players, but not professional players. And, and they're going to have a better win percentage on that point hitting a slice forehand approach than hitting a topspin forehand approach. And it's like, just hit the slice then because you're going to win more points, which means you're more likely to win the match. I mean, everybody's got their strengths and the, you know, the things that they do well. So if you can figure out in, a, in as wide a variety of circumstances possible what your best decision is and kind of clarify that decision for yourself before you get on the court, and make as many of those decisions from data and understanding, then you don't have to make them in the moment. If you don't have to make them in the moment, 
you, you're not making emotional decisions anymore. You're less likely to make bad decisions and make mistakes in your decision-making process. And, and I think the return of serve is maybe in some ways the best possible example of that because it's the shot that you consistently have the smallest amount of time to make decisions on, especially when it comes to returning yeah. first serves. And and maybe this is a good time to talk a little bit about the neuroscience of returning serve and, and reactions and, and how that impacts things because that ties in. When when you watch a professional player take a 135-mile-an-hour serve and, and send it back with, with, you know, a good amount of pace on it, I'm sure that probably a lot of people are just astounded at that and wonder how it's even possible. And this comes down to... Uh, you know, the idea of neural neural networks and pre-activation, which I think is worth just diving into briefly, at least so people can have an understanding of maybe something that will really help them to build a pre-return point ritual. And we've talked about rituals before uh, that would make them more effective at returning. Yeah, so one of our favorite things to do, especially when we're facing a big server. So if you're facing like an Ivo Karlovich or John Isner or you know, Rayonich kind of guy, which, I mean, I understand those guys are, are pretty special, but I think we all have them in our local regions. <laughs> you know, there's always the guy that just has a huge serve, and we feel like the rest of his game's not that good. You know, if I could just get a serve back consistently, like, I'd totally beat that guy. Um, but one of our favorite things to do, especially when we're coaching the doubles, is to visualize the return. Mm-hmm. Uh, bef- and, and not just, like, before the match, but before each time that we're going to hit returns yeah is to actually say okay you know if it comes to this side of my body and then i visualize this is what i want to do comes to the other side of my body i visualize this is what i want to do so what can you tell us about i mean we know that that's been helpful right what can you tell us about what's going on there and and what forces are behind it that actually make it helpful yeah, I sure can. And this, to me, is, is a really fascinating area of brain function. Because, you know, when we take any kind of sequential action, like a, a ground stroke or, you know, any tennis stroke, really, uh, once you've practiced enough for that stroke to become habit, which is probably most of the people listening, you have created what we call a neural network, like a, a, a connection between parts of your brain that represent that stroke. And when you hit that, like a, your forehand, for example, you don't think about every individual part of the forehand. I mean, you do when you're first learning it, but once you, you have some level of mastery, or at least certainly a strong habit in that stroke, it's, it's essentially automatic. And this is what people tend to call muscle memory, which I always find an interesting term because your memories don't really have muscles in that way. But your brain does, right? And so when what people term muscle memory, you know, when it comes to playing the piano or, you know, like, hey, it's like riding a bike, right? You never forget how. It's, it's actually a neural network in your brain that it controls a specific sequence of movements or, or muscle engagement, muscle activation. And so when you when you hit a forehand, you basically, it's almost like running a computer program or a record. It's like, oh, forehand.exe, run. And, and then you've got a part of your brain that does that automatically without you having to really actually put any conscious effort into it. And so what, what this is the science of this is that when we pre-activate that network, so for example, if I am about to uh, hit a, a return of serve and I think about my, or I visualize my topspin cross-court forehand return ahead of time, then I've I've pre-activated that, that network by thinking about it. I've kind of lit up that part of the brain. I've that network that is in control of hitting that forehand has been turned on, so to speak. And the science has shown pretty conclusively that if I turn that network on ahead of time, and then somebody actually serves it into my forehand, I have faster reactions, like measurably faster reactions, on executing that network. So I will be able to hit that forehand return and, and execute that, that forehand return more quickly, more rapidly. I'll be able to react more quickly to that return than I would have if I didn't pre-activate it by thinking about it ahead of time. And so when we're visualizing a return to serve, what we're doing is pre-activating the, our, our networks, our kind of computer programs in our brain for the return to serve. Okay, so activating the network would be actually like doing the movement. No, it doesn't have to be moving the movement. Just thinking about it is enough because at the end of the day, it all exists in our brain. 
Right. But I'm saying if I activate the net, the network, like if I actually activate it, that would be actually doing the movement and pre-activating it is like what we're doing when we visualize or we think about it. Well, sort of, it, this is gets into kind of a funny area because there, there's a way in which, you know, the, our brains are in our skulls and every interaction we have with the outside world happens through electrical signals going into our brain from, you know, sight and hearing and touch and all these things. And so if I visualize strongly an action, the brain can't really tell the difference between that and me actually doing it. So when I, when I visualize hitting a forehand return before a point, I have activated that network right in a way that's not me actually physically doing the action but i've activated that network in the brain and and there's a way in which it, it kind of stays awake and so when i call on it again to actually hit the forehand that's why it's able to react faster because that push the brain's already kind of there it's it's awake i woke it up when i visualized and it stayed awake long enough so that when i hit the return it's still there does that make sense so if i have this right then um, someone like me thinks about, I think about activating as like, oh, I, I actually, I took my swing and I hit the ball, mm-hmm. right? But it sounds like the brain doesn't really differentiate between visualizing that swing and actually doing the swing. So if I pre-activate it, then it's like it's called up and it's just there waiting. Exactly. So I, it's physically then probably a shorter distance from our brain to kind of like sort through and find whatever it needs to say, hey, you know, do your movement like this. Exactly. And that's why we're able to react faster in the moment when that thing happens. And and so when it comes to us preparing to actually hit our return, it's worth taking a moment. And this this ties back to what we we're talking about at the very beginning about that that conviction, that purity of purpose. For Andre Agassi, for example, there wasn't a lot of he wasn't thinking about 18 different options on how he was going to hit the return. You know, he was going to drive that thing and he was going to drive it pretty hard and pretty flat. And, you know, the, the type of serve you hit didn't really impact the type of return he was going to hit very much. If you hit a good enough quality serve that he couldn't hit it, then that's one thing. But if he's getting a racket on it, he's trying to do one, one thing essentially. So there, there was a way in which he was stepping up to the line. He had a very clear sense of purpose he had a very clear idea, a very clear visualization of what he was about to do. You know, it wasn't 17 different things. It was like two different things. And, and right. so when, when we step up to serve or return rather, the return the serve, there's having that, that, that conviction, that clear sense of purpose and what we're about to do lets us pre-activate a small handful, a very tight number of networks or, or a program, so to speak, mm-hmm. and and that puts us in a great place to be able to execute them. You know, if I if I come up to the line and I'm thinking, well, gee, if if they serve it to this place in the box, I'm going to hit this kind of forehand. They serve it out wide, I'm going to hit this slice floating lob. But if they serve it three inches from there, I'm going to chip it down the line low. And then on the back end, I'm going to do these seven different returns. Well, look, I'm sorry, but you're not going to keep all those networks active, not realistically. <laughs> but if if your sense okay. is like, you know, when I step up. You know, I'm I'm gonna hit over my back end. The only way I'm not gonna hit over my back end is if you really, really, really stretch me. I might chip up the lob in doubles, for example. And so that's two back ends, basically, that I'm pre-activating. And the same thing on the forehand side. You know, I mean, I'm basic, but even there, I'm probably only gonna hit one shot off that forehand. I'm either deciding ahead of time I'm gonna take it cross court, or I'm gonna take it down the line, and I'm virtually never gonna lob that. And so there's really only one network that I'm activating at a time. And so when that serve comes in, I'm not sitting there trying to pass through like, oh, I'm going to do this or this or this. It's just go. Nice. So, okay. Tell me if this is off topic, but I kind of want to take a step back. Um, Not backwards, actually, but I want to ask more questions about this, right? Like if these are better ways to actually hit returns, right? Like this... prepares us to return better mm-hmm. um, we were ter- we were we were talking previously just about the way that i kind of build hey let's get better at returning faster and faster balls let's try and really focus in on doing the things that make you a good player mm-hmm. what are some of your favorite tactics uh, 
for actually returning for different kinds of players. Right. Like not every not everybody like I have a guy on the tour that I work very closely with that can kind of return like a pat rafter. Like he can ship and come in and he's good at the net and that works great for him. There there's another guy that I work with that can't hit a slice return. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like literally like he can't chip and charge. It's horrible. And his volleys aren't great. And that's not going to win points for him, right? So I can't just tell them, hey, this is the way that you should return. It can't be the same thing. So right. what are the different kinds of tactics that different you know, different kinds of players can use or that we can use at different points throughout our development as we keep uh, you know, completing our games? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, a, that's a rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> well, I, just I, give me, like, what are like, your two favorite things that so I'll give you my two favorite things to do on the backhand return, depending on who I'm playing. So okay. if I'm playing against somebody who I think I can boss around the court, like that I can I can mostly out hit, I okay. am going to generally step in and hit over the backhand return and try to drive it deep. You know, on the ad court, usually I'll go down the line on it and try and drive the ball into their forehand, get them hitting a slightly defensive forehand so I can set up my forehand on the next point. On the deuce court, I'm going to drive it into the backhand corner. Um, but I'm generally going to step in, take it early, and drive through the ball. The depth is less important to me than just taking time away and, and hitting a solid solid shot. If it's somebody who I think hits big off the ground but doesn't really like to come into the net, I'm going to play a short low slice. Uh, and and pull them up into three-quarter court where the ball's low, they can't really take a full cut at it, and either hopefully draw them into the net, which I can usually do a lot of the time, where I can lob or pass them, or at least put them into an awkward position where they can't really attack the ball so much, and and then you know we're playing a little bit more on my terms. So those are the two types of, of singles returns that I tend to hit. Um, you know, if it's doubles, I'm, I'm just driving the backhand low, uh, and then if I get really, really stretched, I'll bunt up the lob. See, I can already tell for, just from the way that you talk about that, like, oh, I'll hit this, you know, short, low chip return and bring them in. Like, that's the kind of thing that players that have a pretty complete game do. That's, mm-hmm. that's, not, that's not like a one-dimensional kind of play. Like, you didn't see Andre go to that very often. No, but you would you see... Don't, you don't, uh, like, you don't right, see Novak go to that very often. But you would see, like, Fed do that a lot when he was younger and didn't feel good about his tops and backhand return and didn't hit it very much. Right, but, right. I mean, come on, you picked Fed. I mean, the guy has a super complete game Well, but I'm also, saying, but right? he, didn't, he didn't have a complete return to serve game back then. Uh, Not really, okay. right? I mean, the, I yeah. think he felt a lot more limited in what he could do off the return. I mean, and he's turned, he's turned from hitting probably 70, 80% of his returns as slices to now he hits, you know, 80 of them as topspin. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, that's, that's been a huge turnaround in his game in the last three, four years. Um, you know, it's interesting, too, because I remember Rafter used to actually hit that return, but he would come in behind it. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Like Fed would hit that return and say, like, well, I'm going to hit a forehand almost no matter where he is in the court. Right. And he, well, felt, he felt comfortable with hitting the passing so, shot. So to put this in context for you, since you've said it like that, look, the reason I have that slice return is because in, in college tennis, I was a chip and charge serve and volley player. I stayed back, I think, on two serves in my entire college tennis career. That's like a, as that's in twice, I hit stat. twice twice in three years, I want to say that I hit a serve and stayed at the baseline. Um, right now, how many people do you think like, man, this guy probably has horrible ground strokes? Uh, who knows? But that's, <laughs> but that's all I have. I just and I, you no, know, but I, I was. I mean, really, that's that's that was it. And so when it came to like doubles, for example, I was chipping most of my returns at doubles, and I was not a good doubles returner. I had days like if you couldn't like bother me, I could sure I could put that slice backhand on a dime. But like against the good teams with better serves, like I'm struggling a little bit because I just I didn't have options. Okay, and that, that was it for me, right? And it wasn't okay. really until about seven or eight years ago. You know, I'm in my 30s, and finally I was like, you know what? I'm just going to hit over every bloody backhand return from now on. And and then over the time, I developed a good tops in backhand return, but I didn't used to have that at all. And so, you know, when, when I didn't have options, I would hit that short slice a lot, or I would chip it deep and come in, but it was all slices. And it was a lot of returning and coming in behind the return because that's what I needed to do. That's what fit my game. Okay, you have to let me tell people... Right, that if I, if I you know, saw if you if, if you saw Glenn hit balls right now, if you saw him play a match, you would not believe what he's telling you right now. 
like you just you wouldn't believe it you wouldn't believe that a guy couldn't like didn't have weapons from back there because your ground strokes are certainly weapons now yeah but that's been that was a that's a 20-year project in the making as, as okay an adult. so that's but, so that yeah. didn't all happen all at once like you didn't just you didn't just have all of that as a teenager which is good to know um you know for me like you didn't see this whole development, but I'm literally, I hit a one-handed backhand from the ground. And if you think about this, you already know where it's going. And I learned actually to hit a two-handed backhand on the return mm-hmm. because that's how bad I felt about my backhand return. Um, now I could hit the slice, but that wasn't enough for me. I didn't feel like that was something that I really knew how to use as a winning strategy right. for whatever reason. Now, ironically, after I spent a few years developing the two-handed back in return, I'm perfectly comfortable using the slice or using the one-hander and just attacking that way. Um, mm-hmm. But again, like I have to raise my hand over here and say, hey, you know, it took, it took a while to kind of figure those things out. What I wish I had realized was that I could have taken a step back from my game and instead of being so down on myself for having what I viewed as a big weakness on one of my returns, I could have made other changes to the way I was going about returning that would have given me opportunities to get into more points and to put myself into positions that I actually liked and was successful in. Mm, Sure. Right. So, you know, there was a lot of mismatch for me um, in terms of the kind of shot that I was hitting not matching up to what I was trying to do with it, not matching up then further into my overall game as a whole. Yeah, so, I, I mean, I think a lot of people have that mismatch. I, I, I had it. I, you know, I, there was there was a way in which I had that. I didn't have that mismatch in college tennis when I was pretty much a pure seven volleyer. I mean, I I beat beat people, good players, barely hitting a Totson back in for an entire match, but. You know, when I played futures and I developed a more well-rounded game, I, I it actually got, in a sense, my return got worse because I wasn't playing pure serve volley tennis anymore, but I still was returning like I was a pure serve volley tennis player, but then I wasn't coming into the net behind it. And so I ended up hitting these, like, essentially just defensive slash returns a lot, which really hurt me for a long time. Uh, I wasn't starting my return point out in a way that was cohesive with the way I was going to play the point. And so that was a problem. You know what? Right. Like We didn't talk about this beforehand, but I really like the way that you said that. And th- this actually brings me back to something you asked me earlier about where do we start when we talk to guys on the tour about returning. And this is one of the things that always comes up. There's far too many of us that are returning out of fear. We're just mm-hmm. afraid we're not going to get the return in play or we're afraid that the guy's just going to win the point on the next shot, you know, that we're just not doing enough or that we're not doing a good enough job in one way or another. And I think that there's a way in which people are much more successful reacting quickly, because, right? Because I think, you know, a limited time is one of the big issues on the return. Mm-hmm. And people are much more successful reacting quickly when they have a certain kind of aggressiveness as part of their mentality on the return, mm-hmm. which is not the same thing that I had like when I was 17, which was just hit like a flat anti erotic style forehand on the return. That was short-sighted to say the least, right? Um, but even the way that you're talking about as you served in volleyed, your chip return was just much more active and engaged than reactive. Yes, it was, it was hit with a very clear purpose. Yeah, and, and that seems to me like if nothing else, you have to have that clear purpose in order to at least approach getting the most out of your return game. Yes, I think that's absolutely so, true. I mean, that's something that I think you can get right now, today, you can go out there tomorrow and just ask yourself like, okay, well, have I been setting aside time to actually practice my return? What's my purpose look like on it? How clear am, am I on what I'm trying to do? I mean, we could talk for hours about all the different details and tactics and how we want to do different things with different players, but at least we can start there. Mm-hmm. And if you're not coming at the return with a 
decisively clear and active purpose, then you're leaving something on the table right away before you even answer all those other questions down the various rabbit holes. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm maybe uh, a thought in closing. I'm just always reminded when I talk about return to surf and, and that clear sense of purpose of when Agassi won his first Wimbledon title. And it was the match, you know, it was the tournament that nobody expected him to ever win, let alone that it would be his first slam. And he's playing Goran Ivanisevic in that final. And Goran was a monster server, huge lefty, incredible disguise. Agassi gets aced 51 times in, th- in five sets. I think that's right. Something and crazy. It's, it's 51 or 52. And I'll never forget because he got aced so often. There was games where he'd be aced two or three times in a row. And he would just walk. Like, he, you know, he stepped forward, did his split step. He's still high up in the court, aggressive, didn't even have a look at the surf. And he would just, <laughs> he would just turn and do that, 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 that distinctive Agassi walk to the other side. And, and then step up, split step, ace. Like, not even, he didn't even take the racket back for a swing. It was just gone. And he just turned and walked to the other side. Just blank-faced, didn't have a care in the world. It was just like, to him, it was just the cost of doing business. He knew if he stepped up and tried to take the ball early and attack it, he was going to get aced more often and he was okay with that because he knew every set there'd be one or two games where he'd get a read on a couple and clock them and hurt the guy and that was enough for him and so you know just have that 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 sense of purpose and understand that if you have the right strategy the right strategy and if somebody's acing you then that's fine uh, you still have to stick to the game plan and see it through all the way and so on yeah. that note right, that's well on that note we're about to finish but i think what you're saying there is even stronger it's not just if you're getting aced i think whether you're making errors whether they're winning whether they're holding if you have that clarity of purpose and you understand what it is that you're trying to do that's that's you playing your best tennis absolutely absolutely and understand like look people don't play well forever if somebody's out there and they're serving great and they're acing you a whole bunch that's fine you know, the question is, are they still going to be doing that in the third set? Because you only need them to serve badly for one game to get the break. And so there's that, Especially that way. Especially if it's the last game. Well, that too. So I think, you know, just, just understanding that you're if you're doing the right thing, it's the right thing no matter how well the other guy's playing. And so I think that's important to keep in mind. And on that note, folks, uh, I think this is a good time for us to wrap this up. If you have any questions or comments that you'd like to share with us please feel free to shoot us an email you can reach me at glenn at tacticaltennis.com and i'm jacob at tacticaltennis.com and you can follow us on twitter at tactical tennis uh and i'm at glenn s hill also on instagram at tactical tennis and uh finally you know please give us a, a shout out on facebook if you if you like the the podcast or the website um you know we certainly love to hear from you and on that f- note Have a great day, and we'll catch you next time. Cheers, guys.